When a developer spins up a virtual machine on AWS, that virtual machine could be purchased using one of several types of cost structures. These cost structures include on-demand instances, spot instances, and reserved instances. On-demand instances are often the most expensive because the developer gets reliable VM infrastructure without committing to any long-term pricing. Spot instances are cheap, spare compute capacity with lower reliability that's available across AWS infrastructure. Reserved instances allow a developer to purchase longer-term VM contracts for a lower price. Reserved instances can provide significant savings, but reserved instances can be difficult to calculate how much infrastructure to purchase ahead of time. Aran Khanna is the founder of Reserved.ai, a company that builds cost management tools for AWS, including tools for managing reserved instances. Iran joins the show to talk about the landscape of cost management and what he's building with reserved AI. Iran Khanna, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thank you so much for having me again, Jeff. You've been on the show a few times. Once you were talking about a side project related to security and privacy, and one time when you were at AWS, when did you start working on a company? Yeah, so this company actually came out of a previous company I was at, but it was really colored from my experience at AWS working with customers in launching new products there, such as the SageMaker product, as well as talking to a lot of these large enterprise customers who are constantly saying, hey, this is awesome. We love all the machine learning tooling that you're bringing to us, but can you apply some of that to my build? Because it's you know two terabytes large now and absolutely inscrutable. I don't know what's going on, how to even forecast on it, let alone optimize against it. So heard of that a lot. And then you know definitely was very well aware of the problems and particularly being a data scientist in the role I left AWS to, to go into, working at you know, large, you know, say Fortune 5 companies and seeing the pain from the customer side viscerally on on managing cloud costs. Uh, essentially, it got to the point where no one was doing anything about it. And, you know, we felt like we had to take some bias for action and, and build a solution here. Well, you say nobody's doing anything about it. There are a ton of cost optimization companies. So did, did you have an idea for doing something particularly different? Yeah, definitely. So the thing that, you know, we would constantly hear from customers and my response was always, hey, go look at an AWS partner. Go look at one of the many, many partners out there who focus on this. And, you know, what you hear time and time again when those customers came back to us is, hey, you know, they're great. They got us 20% of the way there, but I still have to have a team full time, you know, spending four hours a week doing the billing administration and the accounting. And even then the recommendations and suggestions that I get out of these third-party tools need to be implemented and go through sort of a verification process on our side. So there's still a lot of overhead. And, you know, the problem is that, you know, while they might save money, they, they spend more time. And our goal was really to come at it from an automation first approach and really get to the point where we could take that ops or, or finance person who's spending four hours a week doing a lot of the billing administration, the RI management, the purchasing, uh, and take that down to four hours a quarter with ample use of automation and sort of machine learning and optimization on the back end to make sure that that could go smoothly and the risk for the customer was greatly reduced. Okay, so RI, that stands for reserved instance? Correct. So, you know, folks who are probably more familiar with large deployments running on AWS have probably run into this, but there's always a lot of confusion in the industry around what this term actually is. Is it a machine that you're reserving in someone else's data center? Or, you know, what is this sort of object? And I think a lot of people are, are unfamiliar with the fact that, you know, the cloud gives you all of this flexibility and you're renting essentially these virtual machines that are very fungible. However, when people think of an RI, they think of it as a specific instance in their cloud infrastructure. When that's not actually it. In fact, what an RI is, is it's actually a contract. It's a contract that says, hey, as long as you're holding this contract in your account, you can use anything that matches it. And that will essentially be covered. It'll have zero cost to you in lieu of that RI, that prepaid contract covering that instance. 
So it's sort of an, an interesting and, and counterintuitive concept. And it also creates a lot of pain, especially around attribution of, you know, who owns this, this object because it can float between almost any instance running across your cloud infrastructure. Are there particular kinds of applications that people use reserved instances for? Yeah, so usually the general advice is if something is a long-running application that needs to be up 24-7, that's a really good candidate for a reserved instance. However, as obviously the cloud has evolved, more and more contracts and billing constructs have been introduced. So now there's convertible reserved instances and savings plans. And, you know, the idea is they want to give you more and more contracts and more and more flexibility, more options to essentially purchase the underlying compute. And the net of that is that now you really think about your consumption a little bit differently. You don't think about it in terms of a machine being up for a long time. You think about it in terms of an aggregate amount of usage. Even if you're turning on and off machines, spiking up and spiking up and down, there's maybe some base load level that you want to cover, even if it's not a consistent thing across any individual applications, it might be consistent among all your applications. So there's additional complexity now with more contracts being introduced that make both the attribution side and the planning side and optimization side a little bit more tricky as there's more opportunities to get savings from different types of workloads. Just to make sure I understand a reserved instance correctly, if I just stand up a, an EC2 instance on my own, do I know if that is a reserved instance or a spot instance or what kind of instance it is? Yeah, so usually when you just click the button and get a machine, that starts with the on-demand instance purchasing model, which is the default type. It's it's the classic click a button, get a machine, and it's with you as long as you want it until you turn it off. And that actually tends to be the most expensive way to purchase these sorts of compute resources. And what you'd actually need to do is you need to go in and specify when you do that initial provisioning, hey, I want this to be a spot instance. However, with reserved instances, it's a little bit different because what you would do is you would consume the machines the same way that you would with on-demand instances, but separately, you would have to go and purchase these contracts now that could then apply to these running instances. So it's a slightly different model for both spot and for these reservations, reserved instances and savings plans. So where is the complexity in managing reserved instances? If I say I've got, like, let's say my company is doing great, I've got some really long-lived applications, and I want to give these applications reserved instances to run. If I just want to buy these reserved instances to, to stand up for a long period of time, what's the complexity in managing them? Yeah, so there's sort of two steps in in the process that get quite complex. Once on the purchasing side, and then once you've actually purchased these instances on the management side. So let's start with the purchasing. With the actual initial basket of contracts that you want to put together, typically you'd have to go to every single separate service in AWS. And I think in the native GUI right now, they don't give you a lot of flexibility. You either pay 50% upfront, 100% upfront, for all one or three years. However, what you're able to do is actually mix and match these things if you're able to be smart about this. And most folks will basically go pull pricing sheets into Excel spreadsheets and try and figure out, hey, you know, for any given resource, there's 40 different contracts I can use to cover this. And I have you know, hundreds or maybe thousands of resources in my account. So as that sort of scales up, really figuring out the best basket of contracts is to get you the best discount under your set of constraints as a business becomes increasingly more complex. In fact, if you want to solve it optimally, say I have $500 to spend up front and I want to cover all of this infrastructure, solving that problem is actually empty hard. So there's a lot of complexity just in that purchasing step if you want to get the best discount for yourself. And the gap between sort of a naive purchase and a really optimized purchase where you're blending the one-year and three-year contracts, blending the different purchasing modes, etc., is you know upwards of 50% incremental savings sometimes. So it can be quite significant. And especially for large organizations, this becomes a problem that is quickly outside of the scale that one data analyst can easily manage. So as you mentioned, there are a few different kinds of reserved instances. 
there are convertible reserved instances and there are standard reserved instances. Define these two types of reserved instances. So just on the reserved instance side, and there's also savings plans, which are another reservation model that, that's sort of similar as well that we can talk about. But on the reserved instance side, the standard reserved instances are essentially the least flexible offering of a contract here that AWS will give customers. And what they essentially stipulate is that you must use that same exact type of machine in that same region with the same operating system for the length of the contract. They're not able to be flexible between different sorts of regions, machines, operating systems, or tendencies. So you're really locked in uh, with a standard reserved instance. Now, what's interesting about the standard EC2 reserved instances specifically is that they uh, have a secondary marketplace where you can actually sell back some of that capacity to other users. And what we do for our customers is we guarantee for some subset of their contracts they can trade it back to us. So we actually de-risk a lot of that purchasing when you're locking in with a standard reserved instance by giving you some insurance that we can take it off the books if you're changing around your infrastructure. Now, the convertible reserved instances have a slightly lower savings rate, but they are a construct that lets you essentially with the call of an API change the type of machine that they're applied to. But there's some very complex rules around those conversions. And I think it's sort of a reason why the savings plans, particularly the compute savings plans, were introduced just in the last couple months. So for the convertible reserved instances, when would I want to exchange a convertible reserved instance? So I bought a convertible reserved instance to run my application. When would I exchange that? Yeah, so the typical logic is that you buy a convertible reserved instance, say, for a T2 machine. And then you turn that T2 machine that it was previously covering off. And now that contract, that convertible reserved instance, is going completely unused. So every hour of the day, you're paying money for that reserved instance, but there's no machine that it's providing a discount for. And what you'd want to do in that case is then find another machine in your infrastructure that's not covered and actually call the AWS API to make that conversion explicitly so that this contract now can cover the new machine that is, that is running. That's actually a very complicated process because of the conversion rules that AWS puts around these contracts. So you can only convert to something that's of equal or greater value for the same time period or potentially a little bit more. So it, it creates this complexity just around doing these conversions, not mentioning the fact that basically every hour of the day that you're not converting, you are wasting some amount of money. So there's a little bit of management overhead just making that conversion just in time. And for the standard reserved instances, you can modify a standard reserved instance. When would you want to modify a standard reserved instance? Yeah, so I think this is actually something that applies only to a subset of standard reserved instances. For example, the database uh, standard reserved instances for RDS, or Redshift, or Elastic Cache don't, I believe, allow this. However, for EC2, I think there's certain flexible standard reserved instances. The Linux operating system family of instances comes to mind, where you can actually take an instance and actually apply it to different sized machines, or reserved instance, I should say, and apply it to different sized machines. So a T2 large could equal some number of T2 mediums based on the conversion rate given to you in the rule set. But again, this is another bit of complexity that you then have to manage as you, you go through and and select the basket of things you want to purchase. So is your company completely focused around reserved instance optimization? So we're actually uh, more of a lifecycle tool because that, that step of just purchasing the reservations and managing them is really the last step in what we view as a broader journey, which starts with actually analyzing your infrastructure, splitting it up into different, what we call segments. And actually doing the analysis of, hey, what of my teams, my applications, et cetera, is covered? Which bits of this have opportunity for waste reduction, for right-sizing? And really, once you go through that process, figure out what different bits of your infrastructure look like from a consumption basis and from a waste basis, then you can really look at, okay, what now makes sense for me? in terms of a reserved instance optimization strategy. 
So there's definitely work beforehand that that we help with. And, you know, the fact is that we have definitely tooling within our platform to make that to some degree self-service. But because we started as this sort of data science shop first, as well as, um, you know, serving enterprise customers, we really invested heavily in building a robust data platform that allowed us to create a lot of customized analyses for that first bit, because everyone's infrastructure and consumption patterns do look a little bit different. And nailing that really then helps you nail the saving strategy that you implement down the line. So going back to the market, I just want to understand why are there so many cost optimization companies? Is there enough space in the market for all these different cost optimization companies? Well, I think it's part of the joint model that cloud vendors have had with their customers. You know, there's, you know, people will say cost optimization is a part of what we do, but there's a broad range of services, I think, that are adjacent that are often confused with cost optimization. Things like governance, which, and and putting in place policies around usage, even security tools often will claim to have some amount of cost optimization. So I think in terms of the market, messaging is difficult because everyone wants to say they do everything. And there are definitely tools that are just focused on cost. I think there's a lot of space just within cost and it's moving so quickly and it's definitely an unsolved problem. It's something where people can adopt all the solutions and not really you know, see a perfect coverage or perfect utilization pattern just because the environments are dynamic and the vendors are very dynamic. The ways in which you can actually get discounts are constantly changing. It means that the market is one that's sort of constantly turning over and innovating. Do enterprises buy multiple cost optimization products or they just go with one particular vendor? So it's still a new market, but I think the bend I've seen is more towards the latter, where folks will adopt different platforms for different uh, specific use cases. So for really that high level you know, single pane of glass view between finance and IT, we found a really strong foothold in the enterprise. For more strategic things that are actually touching infrastructure and doing cost optimization at the level of the actual machines that you're running, there are other vendors that have made a great impact there. And I think it's it's really sort of a function of where in the stack you operate and what you're providing. Because especially at the scale of some of these larger enterprises with hundreds or maybe thousands of developers on cloud, there's enough space and enough people feeling the pain at different points of the stack where a number of these solutions together could be relevant. And as a company that is building cost optimization software, how good are the unit economics? When you look at the business that you're trying to build, how good of a business does it look? Yeah, so... From our perspective, we're really trying to charge for the value that we provide. So the unit economics are really purely based off of the time and money savings that we're able to provide to our customers. And just based on early results with uh, the customers that we have been working with for the last year or so, we can pretty confidently say that you know even at, at large, large scale, we make enough of a dent in terms of the value we provide with additional savings, uh, de-risking a lot of the reservation purchase lifecycle, as well as time savings, that you know we're pretty confident that we could provide a reasonably high margin service that provides a ton of value to customers. So when you sit down with somebody that runs an enterprise, and you you know you start to tell them like, here's how you can save a lot of money. What are the typical problems that they're encountering? What are you diagnosing when you're talking through their their infrastructure and their waste? Yeah, so obviously it changes customer to customer, but in general, there's a few buckets. And you know the first bucket is obviously um, waste reduction. So we look at a ton of folks that just have stuff that's left on, unattached, EBS volumes, idle EC2 instances, idle databases, etc. tends to be low-hanging fruit, but definitely a place where for most organizations, we see some amount of movement there. Beyond that, you know, obviously we look at 
the reservation strategy and any improvements that we can make to what they're doing on that side to either increase coverage, make sure that things like reservation renewals don't get missed because the contracts expire open and then your costs spike up the next day. And additionally, sort of exchanging, automatically exchanging or even selling back unused reserved capacity. That's that's really important. So lots of facets just within that reservation strategy and reservation management. Then finally, looking at provisioning options like spot or even looking at right sizing for machines. You know, are you even selecting the right sort of underlying instance type for your workload? So there's a number of different data streams that we plug into to deliver this analysis, but it is customized per customer. And the impact of each one of those optimizations varies just based on where the customer is at in their cloud lifecycle and optimization journey. And tell me more about that. So if I integrate with the software that you've built, what are you plugging into? Like I've got a big complex AWS deployment. How are you observing and taking in the data that is necessary to understand where I could save money? Yeah. So what's beautiful about AWS and the other vendors in the market who are cashing up very quickly is the fact they offer such a robust underlying API. In fact, essentially everything you do with AWS is through that API. And what we use is a read-only identity and access management role to essentially give our production account external but very limited access into your AWS APIs. And we'll be calling essentially inventory and billing APIs, looking at the metadata with our data platform and using that to make our suggestions. So really with the infrastructure that the identity and access management system has put in place, it's basically fully a trustless thing where you just have to put the credential into your account, trust that Amazon gives us uh, sort of limited access, and we just hit those APIs on your behalf. So it's pretty smooth and it actually doesn't impact or touch any of your underlying production infrastructure. You don't have to install an agent or, or do anything that would compromise in terms of security your underlying deployment. It's all just metadata access and official AWS APIs. And are those APIs that you're accessing for actually buying and selling instances, or are you only giving the users analysis into what is going on in their infrastructure? So we actually offer a free read-only installation that is just doing the read access for the analysis. And if it makes sense for the customer, then we actually upgrade them to the right version, which is a slightly modified credential that does actually have the access to automate the reservation management, purchase reservations, and then resell them as well. And what actually happens if I, so if you start to buy and sell the instances for the users, what actually happens there? What kinds of improvements are you making about how people buy the reserved instances? Yeah, so one simple one is just because it's software, our timing is better. So we don't leave any gaps in terms of coverage, in terms of renewal time, etc. So just by having a little bit of automation there, there's a lot of dead time where stuff is uncovered just because it's somewhere on someone's stack and no one's been looking at it that we're able to just provide immediate savings improvements on. Beyond that, if we actually look at the actual planning and the execution bit, we're able to put in place automation policies around reservation purchases and reservation exchanges. So you can actually set a high level set of constraints and we do the optimization and run the algorithm 24-7 in the background. So you don't actually have to go in and worry about doing the alerting and, you know, say when something is underutilized, reselling it, or when something's underutilized, exchanging it. We can actually have automation on top of that, just making sure that it happens in the background and you just get an update email about it. So really on, on those two uh, axes, we're able to make a pretty big dent for the customer in terms of incremental savings, even if they had someone who was doing this full-time, you know, four hours a day beforehand. So you're buying back AWS reserved instances, like when the user has been using their reserved instance and then they don't need it as much as they've actually provisioned for? Is, is that how it works? Can you just tell me more about like, when are you actually buying 
their reserved instances back? Yeah, so what we call it is an RI lease. And what that means is essentially when a uh, customer purchases one of these special reservations through our platform, you know, according to the terms of the AWS marketplace, they have to hold it for 30 days. But once that term is up, we'll actually give them a guarantee that they can click a button and send it back to us and essentially take that commitment off their books at any time. And it's a very simple, transparent process that just happens in the dashboard. And really the automation around that is the ability now to then basically have a uh, automatic email sent when something's underutilized and automatically send things back to us. So you're not wasting any time with the commitment that's sitting in your books. And on the other side, when you have a short-term spike, we're actually able to take some of this capacity and give it to you for a short term to cover that, which is useful if you don't want to go into a large commitment, but you do want to kind of bring down that operating cost, say, for, for the month of that deployment. Got it. So so do you, if you're buying back AWS reserved instances that people buy, then are you ending up with this pool of reserved instances that you own that you just customers of reserved AI uh, have provisioned and then they've sold sold to you? That's correct to a degree, yes. And then what do you do with those instances that you have lying around, that, that pool that you have lying around? Yeah, so we have a number of things. But primarily, we, like I was saying before, we'll help lease those to other customers and, and really try and drive savings between all of the folks in our network. Because, you know, I think the usage patterns are quite unrelated. So when someone on one side of, the, of our customer base spikes, it it often is not correlated with other folks. So we're able to balance out uh, this pool between our customers in the back end, essentially. Interesting. So basically what you've done is you've built a way to incentivize your user base to buy longer AWS reserved instance leases, and then you get to capitalize on the pooled gains across the entire customer base? Well, I think more from the customer's perspective, the idea is that, you know, it actually came out of a lot of the work we were doing at these Fortune 5 companies working on data science. One month, we'd be using tons of CPU-heavy instances trying to process down terabytes and terabytes of time series data. And the next month, we'd be running GPU instances, actually trying to train models on these things. And obviously, in isolation, any of those usage patterns might not have made sense for reservation. But if I were to join it with, say, other labs that were sort of doing the opposite of us, but were bursting on different sorts of instances quite frequently, it might make sense to trade. And you know, you start to see at scale this this does make sense, especially along among certain subsets of uh, customers' environments, such as their development environments. It's pretty cool. So the marketplace where this compute is actually being bought and sold, this is a an AWS marketplace, so they like give you APIs Correct. for buying this and selling? Is, this is an official API, and you can Google it. It's the EC2 reserved instance marketplace. And yeah, it's been an active API for a number of years. The problem is that, you know, it's always been hard to find a counterparty in there. And there's not been a lot of volume just because the number of folks who've really been using it is quite low. But as a function of having the visibility and the trust that we do have with our customers, you know, we're very aligned with all of our customers. Our goal is 100% to save them time and money. We're able to, you know, actually create a little bit of a dark pool, just leverage this API on, on the back end to provide the value of actually moving sort of these commitments between our customers and off their books. It's kind of a niche two-sided marketplace, but it's one of these two-sided marketplaces where um, it, it, it's kind of niche in a good way in the sense that uh, anybody that would potentially have bursty capacity or, um, you know, situations where they're going to provision a heavy amount of infrastructure across reserved instances that they may not need in the near future, they could potentially want to sell those instances back to you. But then, of course, you have to set the price at which they would be selling it 
back to you. So how do you do? So it's actually, yeah, so it's actually not uh, a price per se. We'll leverage, obviously we'll leverage some, you know, partial upfront and fully upfront paid instances, which actually do have some prepaid value and, and do have a price. And we obviously use the market price for that. Uh, to be fair to our customers. But for instances that are just a commitment to pay, these no upfront standard instances, we're actually just trading the liability. So there's there's not really a price. It's just the commitment to pay, if that makes sense. So the, if I am using reserved AI, I make a commitment to pay and then I can... Yes, that's exactly what a no upfront RI actually means. It means that I'm committing to pay some amount every month for this contract, but you're not actually prepaying for it. Got it. And then so what happens when they sell it back to you? Yeah. So that that contract, which is a commitment to pay, is something that essentially gets transferred out of your account. So that next month you will not be billed for that commitment because it's no longer sitting in your account. And what's your strategy for building up the marketplace, like the volume of reserved instances that you would have under your control? Well, so it's it's really a function of our customers and where we can drive savings for them. So we're, you know, we're squarely looking at the places that we can create these offers and create these opportunities that provide the most mutual benefit to our customer base. And being obviously very data driven, you know, I come from a data science background. My co-founder is actually from DE Shaw, where he was a futures trader, which is strangely relevant to this world. There's definitely a lot of analysis put into it, but the net of it is how can we maximize our customers' savings? How can we provide them the most value? What are the biggest sources of AWS waste? Yeah, so I think the biggest one that we see is just idle databases and instances. It's sort of this time-honored thing that every time people talk about cost optimization, they talk about that as the obvious thing and everyone nods their heads and they're like, yes, of course, I'll never do that. But obviously that's, that's not the case. You know, you see places everywhere where machines should be at least switched off if not completely removed and you know it's ironically one of one of the big things that we see in terms of just simple cost reduction i think beyond that in terms of just raw waste there's a lot of enterprises especially ones that used to be working with cris that let these contracts go underutilized and it just creates a very unfortunate situation where often they'll even purchase more reserve capacity, even though they have a lot of this reserve capacity sitting around doing nothing for them. So it's another big source of waste that we try and help customers avoid. And tell me about like an example customer. Like I'd just like to walk through a case study to better understand what is actually happening. Yeah, definitely. Well, we have a number of case studies uh, linked on our website, which is nice, but I think we can maybe talk through what we worked with Valtix on, which is a cloud security startup uh, based out of Santa Clara. And essentially, they had a number of developers who had full autonomy to spin up machines in the cloud, all their core infrastructure was running in the cloud. And in terms of just tracking down what was being used by whom, as well as then putting in place a reservation strategy, they just didn't have the bandwidth to deal with it. You know, they had too many other customer requests that were high priority. So we came in and, you know, because we are, you know, truly customer obsessed, we, we actually try and really handhold the customer through the, the whole journey and kind of take ownership of the cost optimization part of their job. So our representative would come in, basically do that initial analysis with the customer sitting on the sitting on the call. And what they had was actually a number of pre-existing convertible reserved instances that were being underutilized. So that was sort of the first thing that we saw there. And what we did was we basically worked with the customer to put in place an automation policy to make sure that those were constantly utilized at the highest level. And then beyond that, we saw that a number of the things that they were previously covering with the convertible reserved instances were instances that were actually up for a really long time and were very unique workloads that probably weren't going to change how they were being hosted, at least for the next year. So we actually moved those to more of a standard reservation model, just by sort of looking through our analysis tools and understanding from the history what's likely to be up. So all of that are representative basically put in place on behalf of the customer. And the experience to them after the initial meeting was just 
us sending emails asking for their approval to basically implement these cost-saving measures on their behalf. And that actually just constantly kept going as their infrastructure grew. We would put together new purchases as we saw savings opportunities and send it over, and they would approve it. So really trying to take the heavy lifting off of their shoulders while delivering those same results of basically having your own in-house cost optimization team. Now, is there a feeling of being a consultancy in in that situation where you have to manually send them in suggestions or or how much of it is a is a programmatic process where you're just monitoring their infrastructure and you can actually programmatically give them recommendations for what to change well so i would say that most of it is actually programmatic what we do want is a human face on the other end so you know while the tool is largely self-service most of the alerting is programmatic we do want to have an initial conversation. We do want to sort of be on the call with you when you're going through the product and making that first purchase, because it could be a big commitment and it could be big and scary. So while yes, there's, you know, most of it self-service, most of it automated, we definitely want to have a human on our side on the, in the loop as well to make sure the customer is having a great experience and they have someone to lean on, you know, in case they have questions or concerns. I would say that, you know, it's, it's definitely less of a consultancy having done that sort of before. It's a little lighter weight than that, but we do want to make sure that we provide the support that customers need and want. And so does your software only work for raw EC2 instances, or can you help with the managed services? Like if if I have a managed service that's running an EC2 instance under the hood, can you help with cost optimization for that? Yeah. So just the way that the reservation system works is if you are consuming EC2 under the hood, you're being billed for it. And you can basically cover that uh, that infrastructure cost with the reservation, be it in a managed service like ECS or in SageMaker even. The other thing is that recently with savings plans, they're now able to cover Lambda and Fargate. So you can use a reservation model in those sorts of serverless services now as well. So I think the scope is totally expanding of where you can use this pricing model, as well as the fact that, you know, the database services and a number of storage services, particularly on Azure as well, allow you to consume with this model. So if you have these people who are just using the version of reserved AI where they just have a dashboard and it's reading their information, you're seeing where their their waste is what is like the most common next step just just to make sure i understand how the system works correctly like what happens uh like what should they do if if they have some kinds of waste like what will be the recommendation that uh, reserved ai will give well so it's it's very dependent on the type of waste right there's a number of different ways that you can be idling uh, resources that you're being charged for that you definitely should not be. So things like elastic IPs, load balancers, even EBS volumes that can be sitting idle or unattached. Those often tend to be a big source of waste. And beyond that, instances that are just being underutilized for hours at a time that should be turned off. So there's a lot of provisioning and you know turn off things sort of suggestions that come out of the initial analysis based on on what's really being wasted. And then the next step is always sort of to put together a purchase that makes the most sense and drives the highest savings rate, a purchase of reservations. Is any of that data hard to acquire, the, the data around what is being wasted? So I think the difficulty comes in the fact that it's a number of different APIs and a number of different services within the cloud environment that you have to then go and gather this data from. So it's definitely accessible. It is difficult in that you will need to do a lot of legwork. And even the services like Trusted Advisor that are supposed to bring this all together into one pane of glass really only expose a subset of the data. So it ends up being sort of a, a hunt through a number of different APIs to get the just the baseline data in place to then start making these higher level intelligent recommendations. What's been the hardest engineering problem so far in building reserved AI? Yeah, I think for us, probably the most difficult thing was 
solving the purchasing optimization because like I was mentioning earlier, especially for really large customers, it's it's technically a NP hard problem. You know, for any single machine, there's now 40 plus, maybe 100 plus with savings plans now, different ways to potentially cover them. And trying to figure out under certain constraints of time length commitment and upfront capital commitment, how to take all of these different potential shuffles of contracts that could apply to this infrastructure and pick out the best one is this incredibly difficult dynamic programming problem. So just from a engineering standpoint of actually scaling this stuff out for large customers, trying to solve this sort of thing in parallel, it, it was very complicated, but incredibly rewarding and interesting, especially coming from a data science background where a lot of this sort of work could then be made more interesting by saying, hey, these are all based off time series forecast now. So everything you're doing is stochastic. So I think as a you know, hard computer science and math problem, it's, it's definitely been one of the more tricky ones that, that we've had to deal with. And can you talk more about how you actually solved that? Yeah. So we did a couple different things sort of at a high level. We did optimization on the algorithm side. So we used, like I was saying before, this uh, specific dynamic programming algorithm. And we also managed to parallelize a lot of the analysis and pre-work and we used uh, Lambda functions actually running on Kubernetes to scale that out. So we actually had to put in place some new infrastructure to allow us to start doing that at scale on our Kubernetes cluster. So that was sort of on the infrastructure side and on the algorithm side, how we, in, in a nutshell, dealt with the problem. And the dynamic programming problem you're talking about is essentially, I've got a reserved instance, and it's perhaps too big for what I'm doing, and you can replace it with several small, smaller reserved instances? So it's a little bit different. Um, the way that we frame it is that you have, say, these four machines you're running, and you have different types of contracts where you know one contract could cover the first two machines, one contract has a different savings rate but could only cover one machine, and you know, different contracts might have different discounts based on how much upfront capital you put into them or what the term length commitment is. So based on constraints at a high level that the finance team would give, say, I'm willing to spend $100,000 upfront, and I'm willing to commit $50,000 for one year and $30,000 out for three years. And basically taking that as high-level constraints and finding the optimal mix of contracts under the hood that gets you the highest savings rate is highly non-trivial. And that's sort of the problem there. So the can, can you explain these discount rates more? Like I don't this is the first I've heard about these. Or sa- savings rates, I think you, you call them. Yeah, I mean discount or savings rate either way. You know, what that that reservation is doing is essentially offering you a, a discount on that underlying resource, right? So what the savings plan or RI is doing is giving you a lower price for that resource that you're consuming. And based on either you can pay all upfront, no upfront, or partial upfront, you can also pay for one year or commit over three years. Uh, so based on whichever one of those you choose, it's going to have a different price. And It's not a standard price across all services, across all instances, across all regions. In fact, it's a different price or a different discount rate, I should say, for all of those options across all of these different sort of resources. And because of that, it's really complicated to actually figure out how you get the highest overall discount rate from combining contracts with all of these individually distinct discount rates. And this... uh financialization of compute resources you said this is a pretty nascent market this is this is a it was it's only a few years old on AWS and there really just hasn't been much liquidity why is that i think you know to some degree it's it's part of the fact that this has been pretty nascent and also fairly niche in terms of sort of who's participating the large enterprises tend to be the folks who really at scale or consuming reserved instances. And I think that, you know, due to the fact that not a lot of folks, even within those organizations, know that the marketplace exists, it just means that there hasn't been really enough interest or enough volume 
of, of folks who would use this tool to make it sort of the robust thing that I'm sure they're envisioning when they put it out there. So really what we're trying to do is to, at least on a small part of that vision, deliver and deliver on behalf of our customers. What's been the process for finding early customers? Yeah, so last year we really started with, as you can see probably from our case studies and our customer list, sort of early mid-stage startups, you know, particularly software as a service startups, where because, uh, especially in the last year, there's been a big emphasis on profitability, going and finding folks where their gross margin was a big function of their cloud cost was really helpful to us in, in finding early champions between both finance and IT, where those teams are really aligned and this problem was top of mind. So really cut our teeth and, and built the best product we could for that set of the market. And then as we sort of took our heads up, we found that obviously really these large enterprises were the ones where the time spent and the money spent was was so enormous that any way that we can move the needle would just be a much, much larger impact. So really in the last six months, we've started building more for those enterprise clients as well. And actually one of the recent folks who joined our team, our founding VP of engineering, came from some of those large enterprises. He was actually previously at Splunk. So we're really trying to you know build a product that obviously still continues to serve the needs of the startups and smaller companies but can also scale to meeting some of the demands of these larger businesses that are now sort of coming in and asking us to provide more customized services for them at some point in the future do you think that there will be dedicated cost optimization engineers do you think this is a a complex enough problem that we'll have people that are employed at companies entirely dedicated to using cost optimization tools? Well, what's what's quite funny is there already are. We talked to a number of companies, and in fact, it's part of the impetus of, of us starting this company. We talked to a number of companies that you would think of as some of the most forward-thinking cloud-native organizations where uh, their vendors like AWS would bend over backwards to please them. And they have entire data science teams and engineering teams just dedicated to internal cost optimization and cost optimization tools. You know, large public companies in Seattle that I've talked to definitely have teams of five plus people working on this. The, you know, folks in the Bay Area that you can think of as, you know, large late stage cloud native startups that are all in on AWS, they have full teams doing this. And if businesses of that scale with that resourcing and that relationship with their cloud vendor still need that resourcing to just handle and manage this problem, I think there's definitely a space for uh, third-party tools to at least take some of the undifferentiated heavy lifting off the plates of these folks and really let them get back to what makes them sort of and their business tick and not basically wrangling the same old AWS cost and billing APIs. So, is your co-founder your brother? He is indeed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's it, what's it like building a business with a family member? So I think you know something they say when you're finding a co-founder is there has to be a lot of trust, and I don't think there is anyone whom I've built more trust with than someone I've basically known their whole life, and and pretty much vice versa. And it's, it's interesting because we've always been into similar things. He's been a programmer since before I have. He was building games in high school before I even knew sort of what the terminal was. But I think because of the fact that we've been in similar fields, we have very similar interests, and there's a lot of trust. It's, it's been an absolutely wonderful experience. And I think that I couldn't have asked for more in a co-founder, especially because we have such a you know, almost unspoken rapport where the communication overhead doesn't even have to be there because we almost know what each other are thinking. All right. Well, last question. What would you be working on if you were not working on reserved AI? Yeah, I think this would probably harken back to the last interview I gave. And I would I would definitely be working on uh, privacy tooling. And if not something within the confines of a business, potentially something in, in the nonprofit space around privacy, because I think since my interest sparked in it in 2015, it's only become more and more pertinent. And I think people are, are really starting to wake up more and more every day to the importance of privacy in our increasing digital lives. So definitely a conversation that I'm still very interested in. And if I was not doing this, I would love to be more involved in. 
Actually, I have one more question. Given how Reserved AI seems like a company that is very much influenced by your experience having come from AWS, I mean, the fact that I had never heard of this reserved instance marketplace, and it is kind of a subtle, uh, nascent market that clearly has a lot of potential, though. It just makes me reminded of the fact that I'm sure there are a bajillion nascent opportunities just within the AWS ecosystem. Did you have any other ideas just you know, based on your your depth of knowledge from seeing AWS on the inside? Yeah, I think from my perspective, the machine learning tooling where where I really cut my teeth, and particularly machine learning and IoT, is a place where I think there's a massive, massive wave coming in terms of new applications, new functionality, and a lot of new infrastructure that's going to be needed to support that, either commingled with AWS or, or built directly on top of it. So I definitely have a number of ideas and things that I would love to work on or see worked on in that space, you know, particularly around, you know, model management at the edge and, you know, particularly in robotics use cases. Uh, there's actually a portfolio company that shares an investment, our, our lead investor is invested in as well, I guess a co-portfolio company that is called Covariant AI. And I think the stuff that they're doing is incredibly interesting. And the infrastructure to support that sort of breakthrough at scale is going to be something that I think will will really change the way that our world works. Iran, thanks for coming on the show once again. Thank you very much, Jeff, and uh, have a great rest of your day. Stay safe out there. Likewise. 